Hey, my name is Sean. Like most kids that grew up in the 70s, Halloween was like a huge deal. It still is one of my favorite holidays. But I also, I remember growing up, I was always told, we always, you know, were uh, warned about, you know, don't eat any candy until we check it when you come home. Oh, that old warning that all the kids got back then. And we never really listened until uh, a friend of mine, and we were going out and he decided he was going to be a badass and he had a tilter roll without his parents checking it. Turned out it was laced with something. I don't know. Um, he ended up having to go to the hospital for like two weeks. Apparently, as it turns out, somebody injected uh, bleach into the candy. So yeah, we always kind of just thought that it was uh, a bunch of bullshit, but uh, apparently it wasn't. I mean, we still keep in touch and we still talk about it, but you know, now kids of my own and stuff, I make sure they check their candy. So uh, there are actually hospitals, I mean, at least around here, that will actually x-ray candy for free. I don't know, it's crazy. It's crazy to think there are people that actually do that kind of shit. But it goes to show you that, you know, <laughs> sometimes uh, mom and dads know what they're talking about. Have you heard the story of- <laughs> The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Tonight's the night where goodies are given to ghouls, goblins, and ghosts. And for every trick-or-treater and non-trick-or-treater alike. For those with a kid or the monster in all of us. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest. And the living and the dead could cope with Time where the dead can come alive again. The dead is nothing we have to be afraid of. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Welcome back to our special Halloween month. Ooh, spooky Halloween month. Boo. Boo. So we really love Halloween. We've kind of talked about that a little bit already. Um, It's a slight obsession for us. And so throughout the month of October, we are bringing you spooktacular urban legends all about the customs and legends of Halloween. We do want to thank all of our listeners. Thank you all for coming back. We do have a new review on iTunes that we want to give a shout out to Abby71. Who said uh, she wants to come and have some wine with us, and you're invited. You're always invited. All of you. Everybody's always invited to come to our cricket-infested wine party. I am not sure how, if we can fit the several thousand listeners we have (laughs) in our backyard, but let's try. Maybe one of these days we can schedule a meetup. Let us know if that's something you're interested in. You can do that in a variety of ways. You can reach out to us on Twitter at Just a Story Pod. Send us a, an email over at Just a Story Pod at gmail.com or send a raven. A writing desk? What? No. Carrier okay. pigeon. Yeah. They're dead. Anyway, three eyed ravens are real. And you could also call the Urban Legend Hotline, dialing 512-222-3375. And you can also. Call or email us your favorite urban legends, things you grew up with, or we really want to hear your Halloween stories this month. Yeah, I mean, that can be anything from, like, don't go to that house, or, you know, there's a creepy old ghost story about the house on the hill that all the kids talk about, or going and hanging out in a graveyard, you know, things like that. Whatever it is. We want to hear about it. Or if you just have some issues with the mother, you can call us. (laughs) 
So this week's urban legend, as was brought to us by one of our listeners uh, at the top of the show, is one that I think everyone in at least the U.S. has heard, and that is the poisoned candy or razors in the candy or needles in the candy, and you better let your mom check the candy. I have a theory about this legend. Yes. I didn't know this until we had kids, but when your mom was checking your candy... She was checking to see how many Reese's Peanut Butter Cups you got. And you know what was happening to your Reese's Peanut Butter Cups? In the pocket. In the pocket. In the apron pocket. In the apron pocket. Because that's totally what I did to our kid last year. We're great parents. We're such good parents. Before we go into the legend any further, I would like to recommend that you all go Google parents stealing children's Halloween candy on the internets and watch the videos. From Jimmy Kimmel. Yes. So... Like I said, this legend has been around for a long time, and of course, it's seasonal. It only comes out at Halloween, and it comes out every Halloween. Oh, yeah. With a vengeance. (laughs) Yes. Of course, it centers around trick-or-treating. Trick-or-treating, you say? Yeah, so I thought before we went into the legend, we can talk a little bit about trick-or-treating. Well, everyone knows that Halloween was just invented by the candy companies, Jacob. I don't know, was it? Well, that's what Max told me in Hocus Pocus. And he is the authority, you know. I think we all know that Halloween itself was not invented by the candy company. Sure. Whatever you say, boss. But that's what Max told me in Hocus Pocus. And everyone knows he's the authority because he's from Hollywood. Or Salem. Whichever. Which, did you see they just opened the headquarters of the Church of Satan in Salem? Oh, God. Or, oh, Satan. Or, oh... Whatever. Oh, Tosh is what I want to say. <laughs> That's what you get. That's the God smack. I think Satanists have a great sense of humor. I do too. But like that, there you go. There you go, goody so-and-so that named people in the Salem Witch Trials. This is what you get. But the idea of trick-or-treating mm-hmm. is actually a very American idea. Merca, you say? I do say Merca. Of course, nowadays, it is celebrated in other countries... It is very, very American. And we get that idea of trick-or-treating. When I say trick-or-treating, what do you think of? Candy. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? All right, so you're like getting a costume. Oh, right, you want the full process. So what what I do when I trick-or-treat, I get lots of funny looks, but I go and I put on my costume, and then I get my bag or my pumpkin, my plastic pumpkin, and I get my safety light. <laughs> And I go out onto a well-lit area, and then I go to a house that has the porch light on, and then I ring the doorbell, and then I wait at the door, and then the person comes, and I say, trick-or-treat, and they say, oh, you're so cute, I love your costume, what are you? And I say, Satan, and they say, oh, and then they give me a Snickers bar, and then I go to the next house. Right. Okay. That's kind of the general idea of what you're doing right now. Today. That is what is going to be happening in a few weeks. But why is it called Trick or Treat? Uh, because it's Halloween has to be a little scary? Well, there's like the scary element, the ghosts and the ghouls and the costumes and the decorations, of mm-hmm. course. But that trick part was an integral part of things in the beginning. Is it a nice way of asking for like a prostitute to give you one for free? <laughs> a trick. Wrong kind of trick. Okay, sorry. I don't know. As a kid, I just always took it for granted. I just thought it was like a thing that you said because it sounded cute. Right, but it's it's not. It has its origins in the origins of trick-or-treating. And 
I wanted to start off with this paper by Gregory Stone. It was published in 1959, and it's called Halloween and the Mass Child. And he traced the evolution of Halloween activities in his lifetime. So he would, you know, start talking about himself and his friends and his memories uh, back in the 30s, going around and playing playful tricks on everybody, and how that changed through time to become more of our modern iteration of trick-or-treating. Wait, playing tricks on people? What yes, do you mean, playing yes. tricks on people? We'll get into okay. it. Okay. get into it. Now it's just an occasion to go around and get candy. He really just, like, throws trick-or-treating under the bus. <laughs> okay, so reality show finale. This is when he comes out and reveals that he's the Halloween antagonist all alone. He's just not on board. Right. He cites another paper about changes in American values by Reisman called The Lonely Crowd. And Reisman's character type of other direction may indeed be a prototype of American character and not some strange mutation. Consumption, tolerance, conformity were recognizable in the Halloween masquerade. Production, indignation, and autonomy were not. Ooh, those sound like uniquely American values, those last three, he said. Yes, the other ones are not at all. Well, no, I mean, like, like in the way that people think they know what Thomas Jefferson thought American. Right. And then he goes on to state, Stone says, it is a rehearsal for consumership without a rationale. I mean, I wish I didn't agree. So he is playing up that point of trick-or-treating, Halloween was invented by the candy company. Yeah, he's, he's claiming that. He is saying this is some kind of rehearsal for mass consumption. We are teaching people to expect to be given things. We are teaching people to spend without knowing who they're going to be providing things to. It's just sort of a silly, like pointless exercise that sets up a really strange social interaction. But is it, you know, is it truly something that was kind of manufactured by adults, manufactured by companies to kind of push this agenda? Stone says it is. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people say other things, too. And I think it's interesting. I think that's the question to ask is, is this created by adults to push mass consumerism? And is it like an attempt to deflect those old ways of like pranking? Or is it something else? Okay, so I think that one of the most important things to realize when you're looking at Stone's quotes is he's referring back to something that you're you're holding out on me. And I, I know you're going to tell me in a minute and you're just trying to make me curious but he's referring back to this this time when it wasn't this way and when there was autonomy and production and indignation. Right. So he's referring to a time in history when trick-or-treating was like a subversive act of protest. This is like a fucking purge. You know that movie? It sounds like that or the lottery where they go out and throw rocks at someone just for the fun of it. You know, like whatever it is, it sounds like anarchy. He's lamenting that. So I'm assuming that came first, and then we moved into this this tamer form. Right, and it did. And, you know, with a lot of these Halloween traditions, people like to trace it back to Europe. And so, as everyone tries to do, people have tried that with this. And unlike a lot of the Halloween traditions they do, which we'll talk about later on this month, this one really doesn't. There were a lot of ritualized begging festivals in oh, Europe. Oh, like uh, the Courier? Well, like we talked about in the Mardi Gras episode almost a year ago. Get in your way, way back machine and go find that episode. It's super fun. 
and like the Fest of Fools and all these other festivals where they had this ritualized begging. But there's no direct kind of tie to that. There's also ritualized begging in English and Irish tradition of souling. And in that, people were going around begging for alms and soul cakes on Hallamas on November 1st, the day before All Souls Day. What the fuck is a soul cake? It's a little cake. Why do they call it a soul cake? I didn't name it. That is a terrible name. It sounds like the worst emo band ever. But... And slightly horrifying. Well, I mean, it was called that because they were taking the alms, they were taking the treats as payment for prayers for these souls on All Souls Day. Okay, so it was like kind of like a soul Kickstarter where they crowdsourcing getting out of purgatory? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I'm disappointed when I understand things. But like I said, no direct tie to the U.S. And you start to see some other traditions in the United States that do start to kind of directly tie into it. So there are no references to trick-or-treating before the 1930s in the U.S., Uh, In 1919, there was a book written about Halloween by Ruth Edna Kelly, where she talks about numerous pranks and revelry and merrymaking, but no trick-or-treating. But at the turn of the century in New York, they had a similar thing to trick-or-treating at Thanksgiving. Okay, well, Thanksgiving is a whole different animal, and what Thanksgiving used to be is slightly horrifying, and there's actually a really good episode of the podcast The Dollop about the origins of Thanksgiving that I would suggest you listen to right before you go see your family so you can think about how good of an excuse it gives you not to make that trip. Any excuse. So, at this time, mostly boys would dress in costume. Um, Were they dressing as Indians or as pilgrims or as... Yeah, it, was like, like, it was like that scene in Adam's Family Values. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. No, they were dressing as like ghouls and goblins and ghosty things. Okay, so spooky, but for Thanksgiving? Yes, and they'd go what? around, yeah, and they'd go around performing these like murmur plays. What's a murmur of, play? Kind of pantomime kind of short little plays yeah and ask for money okay would they like do a little dance yeah do a little dance and do a little play and they would ask for a treat that just sounds like new orleans pretty much okay kind of street performance um that eventually died out with the great depression along with understandably people just complaining about it like not liking it used to hate kids man it's true No, like, it sounds like we're joking, but no, they used to hate kids. See, orphan trains. They were just like, ah, they're really in the way. We should send them off to live on a farm somewhere. And they were talking about killing them, and one guy thought they were actually talking about sending them off to live on a farm somewhere. And so he rounded them all up and sent them to live on a farm. But people hated kids. They were always in their way, and they were dirty, and they didn't behave, and... Yeah, they were a nuisance. Yeah, pests. Street urchins. Oh, God, what was the other one that they used, like... Street Arabs. Oh, yeah. Uh, ragamuffins. Oh, God. There were some good old names. You could get away with so much. But our modern kind of iteration of where trick-or-treating really starts is kind of in the 30s, 40s. There's no specific day it started, no specific Halloween, and no specific place. Just kind of bubbled up from the collective unconscious or like... The candy companies, like, sent subliminal messages, or... That's probably what it was. <laughs> but no, it actually really didn't have to do with candy. It had to do with more the mischief-making. So, 
Are you telling me that in the early days, the emphasis was on trick? Mm-hmm. Not treat? That's right. That's what Stone was lamenting. So are you, wait, are you telling me that that was like a, a ransom demand? Like, I will trick or you will give me a treat. One of the two things is happening. Like, kind of like extortion? It was. So, there are several areas where this sprung up, like I said. In L.A., they have reports of boys celebrating with pranks. And they even would host Halloween carnivals to try to curtail this. The first actual written use of the word trick-or-treating was in 1927 in Alberta, Canada. Canada? They came up with this terrible activity. Canada. Well, of course they found a way to like, they gave him an out. You know, like we didn't give him an out down here. They were like, oh, we need to go pranking, but we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. So maybe we'll just ask for treats. And if they give us treats, we won't do the tricks, you see. And then we'll tell them we're sorry the next day. Don't you think? Don't you think that's how it went? Most likely. Okay. So in the papers it said, the youthful tormentors write back door and front, demanding edible plunder by the word trick or treat, to which the inmates gladly responded and sent the robbers away rejoicing. But it's a playful tone. Is it? Yeah, it, it is. It kind of sounds like crime. Well, they're using some of the modern vernacular, too. You know, because the 30s, gangsters and robbers and cowboys and Indians, all very popular culture. Okay, so it's like, this is a holdup, see? <laughs> We're gonna teepee your trees, see? If you don't give us some candy, see? So this is a bunch of little gangsters with their fake little Tommy guns on your front door demanding you pay up if you want their protection. They're like a little goon squad. Like, No, they are. They were often called like gangsters in papers. Their accounts in, from the 30s in Oregon and Missouri and Indiana, Nevada, California, Washington, all these separate places, it kind of spontaneously occurring. One article from Nevada in 1938 said, Trick or Treat was a slogan employed by Halloween pranksters who successfully extracted candy and fruit from Reno residents. In return... The youngsters offered protection against window soaping and other forms of annoyance. Oh my god, this is purely in response to like bootleggers. Like I swear to god, this is totally Al Capone inspired youthful torment of the elders is what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, you can see it that way. And people did try to like I say like curtail it. They'd have carnivals in LA. There's writing in the paper about them kind of planning things to do with the kids at this time. To try to keep them from window soaping or extortion? Yeah. And so okay. They, they, would host, they would host parades of costume children. Mm. Someone would go door to door down the block. One author wrote, Under the personal supervision of their parents, have made sport of Halloween Eve, and this year have planned weird as well as fascinating costumes and going from house to house down the block to make merry. One reporter said, the procession of elves, goblins, and pumpkin heads from house to house, which is so dear and so good for the imagination of childhood. But anyway, these pranks were a big thing. And you know, a popular prank that you can see tying into the modern tradition, it was like doorbell ditch. Ding dong ditch. Right. I never did that. Like in all of my badness and rebellion, that's one thing I haven't done. Maybe you should go do it now. I'm not fast as fast as I used to be, though. Well, I do have to say, when I was doing some reading on this, I came across the original, like, American version of the demand, and trick-or-treat's a hell of a lot catchier. Do you know what I found, like, listed as the original thing you said when they answered the door? What? Nuts! Nuts! We want nuts! 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 We want nuts! Oh my god, I want to use that now. I know. <laughs> so, little criminals 
Little goon squads. They were referred to as goon squads, like <laughs> literally in the paper, gangsters, pranksters, etc. So they would soap windows. They would ding dong ditch. They would what? Other just little annoyances. Okay. And like that article that you found from that time, like warning housewives to make little treats to give out. Right. It was in the recipe box section. Of a newspaper, like in kind of the op-ed ladies section or whatever in the 1940s. They will arrive on your doorstep whether you want them to or not. And it's better to have treats prepared than receive their nasty tricks. Here's some delicious recipes to try to give the little goon squads. And that was a common thing. Women's magazines and newspapers. And they would even like say, oh, invite them in for an uninvited guest party. Can you imagine doing that now? Like kids come over and be like, come into the house for some treats. Their parents would run away screaming and be like, don't, don't, she's going to murder you and put you in her basement. I'm like, I don't have a basement. But, you know, as you were saying, like, where did this spring up from? But it truly is sprung from children's culture, from a culture of play. An article where I got a lot of this information is called Gangsters, Pranksters, and the Invention of Trick-or-Treating. And it's by Samira Kawash. And it was in the American Journal of Play. It's actually a great journal. Like, I know it sounds like a joke, but it's an incredible journal. I've read some fabulous articles from there. A lot of really interesting stuff on uh, joking and satire I've read came from that journal. So, highly recommend. The author calls this a cultural bricolage. Great. I love that term. That is so bougie. What is it? (laughs) It's a novel assemblage cobbled out of available practices, images, and themes, some of all from previous community traditions involving adults as well as children, but some emerge from children's play as passed on from older to younger children. Okay. As time went on, and as, well, you know, adults started having a little say in it, it did start to become more of the modern iteration of dressing in costume, parading down the block and asking for treats. And by the the late 40s, it was really firmly entrenched in white European-descended communities. Okay. By the 50s, you saw that that taming of Halloween. The pranks were gone, as Stone talked about. You know, that time... When they said trick-or-treat, it meant, like, a dance or a song or a poem. That goes back to, like, that more traditional begging, that uh, ritualized begging, like, in the Mardi Gras or with with the Thanksgiving stuff you were talking about. Right. I don't think it's directly tied, but it's interesting that that similar tradition arises. But kids, you know, really didn't know about the whole pranking thing. That That was going by the wayside as Halloween was just changing. Okay, well... With the tradition of trick-or-treating or that costume parading that you talked about, there came to be kind of a mass marketing of Halloween costumes that grew up alongside the tradition. So I did a little research into like popular costumes from certain decades and marketing and kind of how things were done in the way back. So in the 1920s, some of the popular costumes were Topsies, Chinaman, because racism is fun for everyone, Perros, which are kind of that sad clown French thing. Yeah, old school clown. Okay. Clowns, which I guess is like not that, but still clowns. Charlie Chaplins, cowboys and Indians, and hobos. You notice anything about all those costumes? They're all kind of boy costumes. Yeah, they're all kind of boy costumes. I think, you know, more boys were doing this because it would have been the, the mask gangster 
thing. Yeah, it was more boys. They were a little older, like 7 to 12 years old. And it sounds like they're all kind of homemade costumes, too. Right, yeah. I think they mostly were. In the 40s and 50s, you had things like promotional packaging in stores where different products would be advertised with free masks or instructions on how to make a costume. And my favorite sample of this that I found was a free weenie witch mask. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, uh, you got a I'm free- sorry. I'm sorry. A weenie witch mask. Weenie. A weenie. A weenie. Like a weenie. Well, it was advertised with skinless franks. Hmm. Free with purchase of skinless franks. You got the weenie witch mask. This episode is sponsored <laughs> by... Skinless franks and the weenie witch. Go to your store today. Comes with a free party book and weenie witch mask. But yeah, so things like that were more common. You were having like cross promotions. Most of the costumes were not as elaborate as what you think of today. And in the 1950s, because media was becoming more ubiquitous. TV. Mm -hmm. Movies. You saw a rise in the number of available costumes for girls. Things like princesses, brides, angels. And boys were things like army men, astronauts, firemen. Things like the Flintstones and Mouseketeers were also popular. And movie stars or rock stars. So mass media started to take a real big hold. Right. And then you have like the first big rush on copyrighted costuming after Star Wars. One of the first big rushes to copyrighted everything. <laughs> was Star Wars. And they meant it. And then there was kind of a sentiment that with E.T., coming out that copyrighted mass-produced mass-marketed costume really came to its mature state in the 80s mass marketing came to its full effect yes and especially with et there was just something like that was the most over-marketed production maybe in the history of the world see giant landfill full of et games hey, somewhere that, that's a fun documentary by the way but then something interesting happened in the 1980s. So in 1980, one in four adults aged 18 to 40 wore costumes. But in 1986, 60% of adults wore costumes. Mm, so you started seeing a shift towards adults being interested in these ideas. Mm -hmm. Two of the more popular costumes in that time were Mad Max themed costumes. Okay. And Amadeus themed costumes. Different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, a little bit. All right. Can you do like a combo Furiosa with a powdered white wig? Well, I know what I'm doing this Halloween. Imagine how awesome you'd be a piano with like a mechanical hand. Oh my God. Let's do it. So in 1986, the Wall Street Journal reported that for men, the most popular costume was a ninja sci-fi costume, which I don't know what copyright they're trying to avoid there. It's like so I can't, vague. I know I can't think of what that is. I'm like, do they mean Ninja Turtles? Do they mean like, what? And for women, it was a French courtesan, which again, I'm not sure what they mean. Like a French maid? I think French maid. That's where my mind went, but I don't know. And then equally popular for both sexes were vegetables. Just vegetables. Ver yes. Like, like Brussels sprouts. I don't think probably Brussels sprouts, but maybe like mm. peas and carrots and oh, broccoli. Cauliflower. Maybe, but I think everyone would be like, dude, you forgot to paint yourself green. Broccoli. You, what are you doing? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, sorry, guys. God, cauliflower. Nobody likes you. <laughs> and Tina Turner was equally popular for both sexes as well. Which I have to say, that's real easy drag. Like if you're gonna easy drag. easy drag. And there was a 
an academic named R. Chris Martin from the University of Missouri in Kansas City who described Halloween as the perfect yuppie holiday because you didn't have to involve family. You didn't have to travel home and it was equally enjoyable for couples and single people and everyone could go out and have fun and get drunk, dress up, no obligations. Yuppie holiday. And this was the era of the yuppie. See American Psycho. Also a great costume idea. Do you like <laughs> no, your- it's not. No, no. Are you wearing a raincoat? <laughs> yes, I am, Jacob. And so to go back a little bit in time. Back in time. Do you like you losing the news? Just as we have today, there was a lot of criticism about trick-or-treating. And I found some great quotes from PTA meetings in the late 40s. Oh, my. You mean, you mean the people who made the uppies? Is that what you mean? Yes. Okay. And some of them objected to trick-or-treating as a means of saving food, saying, Extra food to well-nourished children who do not need it are wasted as utterly wrong in the thinking of those concerned with the world's hunger. You know, it's only wrong if you're going to send money to a world hunger organization. Well, now we have something like UNICEF. Right. Which is definitely a huge positive. Right, and you do have a lot of like canned food drives and that kind of stuff at schools around the fall season. More to do with Thanksgiving usually, but our trick or treat for canned goods is a thing yeah. that happens. There's a lot of charity stuff going on around Halloween, actually. And another member went on to talk about just how bad the idea and the practice of trick or treating was. You mentioned the goon squads, the goon squads, yeah. the juvenile delinquents, the little rebels without a cause, just ringing the doorbells and getting fat. On the blood of America. Sorry. Okay. I went Fox News yeah. for a second. I'm Chill sorry. Out. I'm sorry. Chill yeah. on. Got a little scared there. <laughs> she said that most of us regard the form of juvenile blackmail with indulgence, but it's bad for children, both psychologically and physiologically. I have to say, like, PTA moms, like, really crafted some formal arguments in a way that you just don't see today. Oh, yes, you do. It's just about even more inane things. <laughs> but it's me. like, but you know, like, Jenny McCarthy said, like, no, man. <laughs> Not like, both psychologically and physiologically. Oh, no, they'll say things like that. They read it on Facebook. Don't worry. Oh, God. And, you know, another <laughs> mom said beggars night and all the gangsters trick-or-treating and saying that parents should be fined and jailed who put their children out to beg. That's kind of harsh, but yeah, okay. Juvenile blackmail. Whatever. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it, it really is a juvenile blackmail. Like, it's pranks. It's fun. You know, the idea of pranking is something that's been around in children's play culture and in boys' culture for a long time. You say, as our trees have no toilet paper in them currently... But, like, I mean, like, if you're out there cleaning that shit up the next day, I bet you think it is juvenile blackmail. Yes, but there's a reason for it. What? How? So, there's a study on boys' culture in the 19th century by Anthony Rotundo, and he talked about how it cultivated and perfected the art of pranking. They made clear that such activities, despite seeming, from an adult perspective, to be simply destructive or anarchic, they were in fact highly rule-bound and governed by a complex system of values. They were developing a scheme. They were developing a plan. There was usually a hierarchy in these groups, someone that was the leader. Like a gang? Right. (laughs) You're not selling me on this. It's like some great moral pursuit. Like politicians? Wait. Like the church? Like 
You're right. We do need pranking. We've got to keep the patriarchy in place. Well, and it's a way for children to go up against authority. While it might be a variant of a gangster shakedown, it allows children to challenge adult authority in person rather than secretly or anonymously. You know, they go up and they have a plan and they ring the doorbell and they demand something. And the adults are playing along too. They're allowing, they're allowing this challenge of authority. So it's like healthy role play. In a way it is. Sure, your windows might get soaped. Someone might ring your doorbell. But you have this PTA member saying that's psychologically damaging when actually, if you look at it from another perspective, it can be psychologically enabling in a good way. Right. Well, one of my biggest criticisms with this idea is that it's relegated to boys' culture. And you know I'm going to say that as a resident non-boy. Well, it's just purely because that's who is doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course you have the outliers, but the majority of kids that were doing this were little gangs of boys. I say we need to encourage more female pranking. Agreed. Down with the patriarchy! Trick or patriarchy! <laughs> Should we give out Margaret Sanger pamphlets for Halloween? Condoms. Condoms for everyone. And so, there are a lot of people that are looking at this loss of pranking as a really negative thing. And while I don't think it's a negative thing, I see where the, some, some of where they're coming from. But of course, they just the rhetoric used is awesome. Very mm. Fox Newsy. Mm-hmm. Some people saying they sold their right to rebellion for some sugar and expensive wrapping. Or it transforms the destructive essence of the holiday into disciplined fun. I don't know. I think like 12-year-olds still get into plenty of trouble on Halloween. I just think that there's been like a a children's category added. Like there's been something for littler kids to do because people still get in plenty of trouble on Halloween. People do still pull pranks on Halloween. Eggs. I'm thinking eggs. I'm thinking toilet paper. I'm thinking bullies in the graveyard stealing Max's candy. You know that movie wasn't real. No, it was real to me. (laughs) But there was a recent study done asking like six and seven year old trick-or-treaters in the U.S. about their experience with trick-or-treating. And it really showed that there is some empowerment to the activity. And I think it's a big day. They get to choose their costume. They get to. (laughs) If they don't live at my house. Yeah. (laughs) They get to go into the community and enact this like chosen role. And they get to make demands of adults and behave in those counter-normative ways. You know, that gives children agency. Okay, I buy that. And, like, (laughs) you know what it makes me think of when you say, like, they get to inhabit that chosen role. You know where my mind goes, right? Hmm. Our kid, last year, this other little trick-or-treater walks up to him, and I've made him a full-on homemade Jack the Pumpkin King costume to rival any costume from now to eternity. We will post a picture on Twitter. We it will, will do it. For sure. We will do it. But he's out there and he's got his full face paint and his big like giant collar and shit. And he looks awesome. And this little kid comes up to him and he's like, what's your name? And he goes, I'm Jack, the Pumpkin King. And the kid goes, no, your real name. And he goes, I'm Jack Skellington. <laughs> he was nothing if not committed. Yep, yep, yep. So at the time, in the 40s, like I said, there was a big push. And it's kind of funny because people would look at it from both sides of the ideological spectrum. In 1947, an issue of American Home, there was an article that pointed to conflicting interpretations of door-to-door. 
saying there are some folks who think the annual gimme campaign is a sign that America is sliding downhill. Well, we have been on the downhill slide since 1776, apparently. Apparently. is a very, <laughs> very big slippery slope. City on a hill led to lots of sliding down the slope, apparently. Shouldn't have put it up that big hill. Muddy hill. But in 1949, you have the Chicago Daily Tribune, and they posted this op-ed saying, It all arises from indoctrination of the young. The young collector at your door is, in effect, threatening that if you don't pay off, he will go communist. This is like a direct stab at like the socialism going on in Europe at this time. You do have a lot of anti-communist sentiment, obviously, at this time. And we, as these good-hearted American capitalists, need to defend our way of life against this entitlement. I go for the, the free market. We don't need to be standing around with our hands out. Get out there and work for it. And man, you do have to kind of think about the way that this generation who is bitching grew up compared to the way that these baby boomers are growing up. You know, they grew up in the Great Depression. If they were standing with their hand out, they were in a fucking bread line. <laughs> you know, like... No, that is an important point. I mean, that's what the, the PTA mom was talking about. You know, this is a waste of food. Right, because that was a genuine concern. I know it's difficult for anyone born after 1980 to conceptualize, but come on. Well, and then also the ration cards mm-hmm. during World War II. Yeah, Those and Victory Gardens fresh. and all that. All fresh memories. Yeah. All there. And the kids, they know nothing about that. No, they grew up on the GI Bill in the suburbs after exactly. Dad came home. You do have to think about that kind of clash that had to represent and... They were, like I said, people didn't like kids. People did not like those little street urchins. And there was this giant fear of the juvenile delinquent. You know, this this idle youth with too much time on their hands and, you know, being rebels without a cause and driving yeah. little bastard to their death or whatever. Yeah, that was the boogeyman of the day. Right. But as we all know, with time, the boogeyman changed. Yeah, the boogeyman grew up. Which is horrifying. But it became, you know, this this mask child abductor, this anonymous fiend in the night. Oh, and then and then we get to the satanic panic. The Satanists are coming for our children. Yeah, and so that idea of the lone stranger weirdo living down the block becoming the new boogeyman ties into what our urban legend of the week is that some random stranger is going to give your kids poisoned candy. For shits and giggles, or later for Satan. <laughs> right, just to cause chaos. To cause anarchy, to produce something and show their indignation and rebel against, you know, like all the things Stone was talking about. Maybe Stone's putting <laughs> razors in the candy. <laughs> there is a question of where the idea of the what's referred to as the Halloween sadist. Which I hate that title. Oh, I actually like it. I think it's ridiculous. No, it's the candy legend. Like, I don't know why. Why is the focus on the human? Like, why is the focus not on the candy? Because the fear is the candy. No, the fear is the boogeyman. (sighs) Yeah, the candy will hurt you, but someone has to do it. No, it just happens anonymously. Fairies do it. I can't imagine a human being doing it. That's terrible. Well, that's a good point. As we like to talk about on the show... Is it just a story? This Halloween sadist putting razor blades and glass in your candy. <laughs> Good question. Is it? 
I'm going to talk like this for the rest of the episode. Please no. No, I am. Everyone likes it. No one likes it. So to pinpoint the origin of this legend is hard. There's not a obvious start. But in 1964, there was a woman in New York, Helen Fale, and she was this homemaker that was just annoyed by all these kids coming and asking for treats. She decided to hand out packages to kids of steel wool, <laughs> dog biscuits, and poison ant buttons. Bitch. Are you serious? Right. She later testified that it was just a joke. Just I, a trick? A prank. So the adults are pranking the kids now? Apparently. She just gave them ant poison and didn't tell anybody? Right. She says that she told them it was a joke and that the ant poison was clearly labeled. <laughs> I don't know if it's better, Helen. I don't know if that's better. But she was charged with endangering children. And of course, this hit the papers hard. I can see why. And you know, one of the big reasons this legend is known everywhere as many legends like this are, is that they are reported by news outlets. Right, because they're doing a public service, right? They're informing the public of a danger, and they need to keep everyone safe. And that's true to some degree. If every mean old lady ever was handing out steel wool, dog biscuits, and ant poison to children, if this was a pervasive trend, it would be worth mentioning, right? right? And reading the papers... You would think it was. In the New York Times in 1970, he said, That plump red apple that Junior gets from the kindly old woman down the block may have a razor blade hidden inside. Well, we all know about wicked stepmothers. I mean, look at what happened to Snow White. Oh, you mean when she ate her heart? Yeah. Or from Newsweek, if this year's Halloween follows form, a few children will return home with something more than an upset tummy. In recent years, several children have died and hundreds have narrowly escaped injury from razor blades, sewing needles, and shards of glass purposefully put into the goodies by adults. So Newsweek then cites their sources and lists all these cases? No. Okay. Because there aren't that many cases, as we're going to. One researcher, Joel Best, and his partner, Gerald Hirucci, looked into several major papers and found 76 alleged incidents of Halloween sadism. Well, I found one where a woman's son died of a heroin overdose on Halloween. He was like a seven-year-old. So someone put heroin in the candy? Well, no, he stayed at his uncle's that night, and the heroin was in the, within reach of the child, and he just ingested it. And that's a lot of times what these cases are. Whenever people have deaths on Halloween related to other things, they immediately blame the candy, and it's reported immediately. And then a few days later... Well, it is a public safety concern. I understand why it's reported. Like, right. I don't want to poo-poo it. But a few days later, the truth comes out. But that's not nearly as much fun or right. as sticky. And it's, it's in the paper, the report is in the paper, mm -hmm. but like you said, the stickiness. Yeah, it's much more sticky. To the headline. Oh, yeah. There have been some doozies. But this led to laws being passed in several states, 71 in California and 82 in New Jersey, all making it illegal to do that. They were training kids at school to inspect their candy. There were public service announcements. There were like cartoon jack-o'-lanterns talking about inspecting your candy. I remember the PSAs from when we were little, like, check your candy for razor blades. I'm like, what kind of asshole would put razor blades in my candy? The Halloween sadist. They didn't say that. <laughs> Maybe if they'd said that, I would have been more scared and not eaten all the Reese's peanut butter cups. And lots of communities tried to ban trick-or-treating due to this. But trick-or-treating's so fun. Everyone loves trick-or-treating. 
Why would we ever do that? Because there's poison and razor blades in our candy. In the 70s and 80s, they started having something that I find intriguing, where they would offer, like hospitals, different things like that, would offer people to come in and have their candy x-rayed. That's still going on. You're right. So it has been going on for a while. There was an article in Dear Abby writing about it happening in 1984, but I found ads from 2014. I remember seeing reports in 2014, actually, that it like there were reports in Shreveport where we had lived previously that like they found razor blades and candy and all, you know, like, but it was not. Right. It's usually just a hoax by the kids. You know, you're telling kids, don't find this. You're going to find razor blades in your candy. And they can get this automatic like attention from going, hey, pulling a prank. Exactly. <laughs> but the next care adds. Are so great. It's a flyer. Mm-hmm. It says, bring this flyer in for a free x-ray. It has an image that they have made of candy with like needles in it and stuff being x-rayed. Mm-hmm. So like it's an x-ray image. And, you know, like there's like a jack-o'-lantern on it. Of course, because <laughs> it's got to be fun. And it says, next care, urgent care is helping families stay safe this Halloween by offering free x-ray scans of trick-or-treat candy to ensure it does not contain any dangerous objects. Attached is an x-ray image of a candy that has been tampered with, showing hazardous objects such as safety pins and razors that would otherwise go undetected by the naked eye. And that's a, you know, a manufactured image. Oh, good. <laughs> and, you know, there's actually been a bunch of studies on this saying it's, you know, completely worthless. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. No physician actually looks at the images. It's just the x-ray tech. And only, like, one place they found had Newman signing liability waivers. So, like, if you have your candy x-ray, then you go home and you accidentally bite down on a razor blade, you could sue the shit out of the urgent care? Yep. Hmm. <laughs> Get rich quick scheme. Don't do that. Don't do that. And if yeah, you do that, do if you're listening to this episode, you've just signed a liability waiver. <laughs> That's right. We do not condone suing next care urgent care clinics. So this brings us to where did this urban legend come from? And... Like I said, there's two sociologists I mentioned. Best and Haruchi did a great study on this. They looked at papers between 1958 and 1984 looking for incidents of this being reported. The first warnings were in 1969. So between 1969 and 1971, there were 31 instances reported. So that was the first big bump in this story. Mm-hmm. So a few years after the incident in New York. And then the next big bump was in 1982 with 12 cases reported. Now, what happened in 1982 that might cause this to bump up? Cyanide and the Tylenol. For 100, Alex. You're correct. There were the Tylenol murders, which we are so going to do an episode on, where someone... Nobody knows who. Still unsolved. ...tainted a bunch of Tylenol, and a bunch of people died from it. No, this is, like, absolutely not funny at all. It's horrific. And I remember being a kid and seeing a thing about this on the Discovery Channel and, like, being genuinely afraid, I guess, is, like, the best way I can say it. Like, it just... I remember this feeling of just, like, hollowness. Like, there's nothing I can do to protect myself. This could happen to me. Right. So, there's an obvious reason for why it bumped up in the 80s. And the FDA did do a lot of studies on reported tampering of food, including Halloween candy. And they said that more than 95% of the 270 potential Halloween 1982 candy adulterations analyzed by the FDA showed no tampering. 
which I'm curious about the like 4% or so left, but wasn't sure. Couldn't find that info. I mean, that's when you start having all kinds of stuff reported, like the fingers and the Coke and the blah, 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 like all tons of food urban legends from that moment. Right. Food tampering was a huge subject of urban legends because it showed that social issue going on. So the other peak was in the 1970s. So it's important to point out that urban legends, the thing we talk about a little. Oh, yeah, I'm vaguely familiar with the concept. Yeah, they're often products of social strain, and they are kind of a social organization to a response to that strain. Because urban legends are often grounded in human baseness, meaning just the bad side of humanity. So actually, I'm going to talk about satire a little bit. I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about play, but satire is like a a response to relieve tension. You know, like we can relieve tension by laughing. We can relieve tension by warning. And so in the same way that a joke functions to kind of lighten the mood, an urban legend functions to prepare you for said scenario. It gives you something like a toolkit or a weapon to use against this new threat. You're armed with knowledge. Right. And Halloween represents that like transition for children. We talked about that giving them some autonomy. They're able to kind of go up against adults. And so they're transitioning from that private restrained behavior to public mass behavior that's commercial and very social. And so they're in strange homes. At the same time, in this late 60s, early 70s, there was a huge change in society. Another thing that's going on while we're we're thinking about our urban legends as like a release valve for cultural tension. We need to observe ideas that were being pushed into culture, the cultural consciousness, in tandem with the legend. As you've seen on the show, a lot of these things came became popular in the 60s and 70s. Right. And one idea that was really being trumpeted as a severe social problem is child abuse. Now, the idea of child abuse in our lifetime has changed. I mean, like, you'll hear people, you know, born from 1970 to 1990 talking about, like, I could totally call CPS on my parents. Oh, I couldn't do the things that my parents did to me to my kid. Oh, we used to get spanked. Oh, we used to, you know, and so there's even in our lifetime, we've seen this kind of like tightening of the belt on the belt. The belt you would take, <laughs> like, the belt you would take off. Yeah, and, and, you know, we've actually been fastening it tighter and tighter and tighter until our skinny jeans are just busted at the seams. But child abuse is not considered a major problem in the United States until the 60s and 70s. Which, you, of course, before it was. Right. You just minded your own business. That was not your business. Yeah. Now it was in this social psyche. First of all, the idea that people that were not parents could abuse children was new and novel. Like before it was like, oh, well, they're an adult. They may be trusted with my child. And now it was like, question everything. Yeah. That definitely transitioned through the 70s and especially in the 80s. Um, Satanic panic. Right. Like Albert Fish was given a, do- a girl to walk away with. And then you have a real public rise of a counterculture. There have always been countercultures. For sure. But we've not seen them kind of covered in the media and glamorized in the way they were in the 60s and 70s before that. Right, you had the emergence of the the hippies. Those damn dirty hippies. (sighs) God. We love hippies. (laughs) Right, so you do have like major counterculture movements that are well documented before that. You have things like the Beats, but you didn't have parents sitting at home worrying their children were going to run away and become a beat poet. 
But you do have parents sitting at home and worrying that their children are going to run away to San Francisco and become hippies because they did. They hitchhiked out there and then Edmund Kipper killed them. But that's a different story. And with hippies come... Pot. They're on pot. They're on pot. Look at their eyes. Yeah, come drugs. And you have the idea that kids are going to get hooked on drugs without even meaning to. They're just thinking they're eating candy and really they're taking heroin and dying or getting hooked and becoming little drunkies and then going out and being goons and wait. It's the same cycle all over again, except now they're being tricked into starting it by accidentally ingesting drugs. You have the LSD tattoos, you have candy with heroin in it, you have all these ideas of sweet, innocent children being corrupted by the evils of drugs without their consent or knowledge. Terrible. Terrible. Wasn't happening. Wasn't happening. And then you have Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Vietnam. Vietnam That was a thing. That was a thing. Mm. Yeah. So you mean something that was taking their children away and killing them? Yeah. To where they weren't coming back? Yeah. Poisoning them with Agent Orange? Yeah. Getting them hooked on drugs? Yeah. So Vietnam was kind of the boogeyman that everyone was actually afraid of and no one realized it. I don't know if the hippies realized it. Man, I don't know what they realized, man. The world's just an illusion created by the man. It's a hologram, you know? Going out to Roswell to see some UFOs, would it come? Get in the van, Scoob. Were hippies big on UFOs? Mine were. (laughs) And then you have the fear of strangers and the mistrust of others and the stranger danger and don't get in the van with that man, not even if he has a puppy, not even if he has all the candy in the world. Don't do it, little Timmy. Don't do it. And the idea that you don't know your neighbors and urban anonymity are really growing and... You know, even the suburbs are getting scary because the second shift's coming and people are leaving and going to new suburbs and it's not just Phyllis and Gladys and Roger anymore. And so as our urban legends love to do, they take these social fears, these social ideas that you mentioned earlier, and they create a boogeyman. They create something for us to be afraid of, but also something to put our anxieties to. So a way to like rationalize that fear, you know, like, it's like, I'm afraid. I don't know what I'm afraid of. So if I hear this story, I'm going to say that must be what I'm afraid of. Right. So, you know, you have this ambiguous fear, this ambiguous thing that could happen in the environment that we have no power over. Mm -hmm. And if we have no power over it, it creates just more anxiety. But by placing it on a person, by that creepy stranger down the road... Or some New York homemaker, <laughs> you're able to have a tangible threat and you can justify your anxiety. And you're able to act in some meaningful way with respect to that tangible threat rather than just feeling frustrated and anxious. So, like checking your kid's Halloween candy. Right. And worrying about that creepy stranger. Oh, I can't do anything about Vietnam. I can't do anything about not knowing my neighbor, although really you could. You could go down and say hi. But they might kill you. It's true. They might. That's why we don't talk to our neighbors. We talk to our neighbors. We say howdy. You know he says howdy. Really? Yeah. But you can't do anything about kids running off to join a hippie commune and smoke pot. But you can ban Halloween. You can go look through your kid's candy to make sure some terrible stranger halloween 
sadist isn't after them. You know, the New York Times referred to these people as child haters and are theorized to have a really deprived childhood, having been abused as children, and are now frustrated. Oh, yay. So we're applying pop psychology to imaginary boogeymen that don't exist. Exactly. Like we do? Yes. <laughs> God, stop taking your job, New York Times. Jeez, I thought you were a respectable journalist. Get in the van, Scoob. So we've talked about this boogeyman as being imaginary, as not being something to truly be worried about. But there are some instances that I feel we should talk about when talking about our poisoned candy urban legend. I may have done a lot of research on this topic. I may have a lot to say. I may not have. I'm just saying. Like, if you, I mean, it's possible. Trick or treat. It's possible you read a lot of news articles from the time period. So, Sam, you've been doing some serious research. Where does this story take place? All right. Well, let's open our newspapers. Come with me. We're going back to November the first, nineteen seventy-four, deep in the heart of Texas. 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 Everything happens here. Everything does happen uh, here. Not, not in a good way. <laughs> not in a good way. No, no, no. So, had you been reading one newspaper in Texas, you might have opened to find the headline, Kids Enjoy a Peaceful Halloween. Well, that's lovely. When the youngsters returned home Thursday night, wary of their neighborhood jaunts, many parents found excuses to empty and study their bags of treats, hoping they wouldn't be laced with tricks. Apparently, such strategy worked, as few cases of sabotage candy reached the ears of the police. However, if you had been reading the paper in Deer Park, Texas, the Deer Park Progress, which I am very familiar with now... <laughs> On November the 1st, 1974, you might have read the headline, Treat Proves Fatal Trick. Eight-year-old boy named Timothy Mark O'Brien died Thursday night, several hours after eating candy he received while trick-or-treating. Medical examiner is doing an autopsy to see if candy caused death. The father, Ronald O'Brien, took the boy trick-or-treating in Pasadena, Texas. The boy became ill after returning home and died several hours later in a Pasadena hospital. Marquez of the police said that there were no other reports of children becoming ill after eating Halloween treats. The child's grandmother, Mrs. L.D. Ellis, says the boy had convulsions and began vomiting and lost consciousness two hours after returning home. Ellis said Tim was a normal, healthy child until Thursday night. He was in third grade at a Deer Park Elementary. So we have a story of someone actually dying on Halloween. Was it related to the candy? Yes, it was. Um... And the police began a massive investigation following this incident. So if you opened your paper on November 2nd, you might have seen. Police combed area door to door. They had realized that Timothy's death was caused by cyanide, which was placed in his Halloween candy. And the police lieutenant, E.L. Gold, called on parents in the Houston area to confiscate any trick-or-treat candy that their children received and bring it directly to the police station. It seems like really good advice. We have an actual incident of someone dying after eating Halloween candy. Right, and they had, at this point, done tests on the boy and the candy because he'd only eaten one piece of candy. What did he eat? He ate a giant pixie stick, a 22-inch pixie stick. Okay. Those plastic ones, you know, that come in the hard things that your parents are like, you do not need that much sugar every time you looked at it. Because it's pure sugar. Yeah. And a little cyanide. And a, 
you wish were parents. <laughs> you wish it were pure sugar. But he'd eaten one of those, and the parents knew that was the only thing he'd eaten. And the other kids that were with him had them. And so they confiscated the other four that existed, and they found that there was cyanide in the pixie sticks. It was in the top two inches of the tubes. And the tubes were normally heat sealed, but they had been opened using a sharp object and then stapled closed. So someone actually took pixie sticks and poured cyanide in them to try to poison the children. Yes. Holy shit. Yep, actually happened. We have notified all schools in the Pasadena and Deer Park area to advise children not to eat any Halloween candy of any type. We are asking all parents whose children collected candy in the Bowling Green section of Pasadena at Citation Drive and Dunrail Drive to bring candy to the Pasadena Police Department. He also urged parents whose children became ill after eating candy to immediately rush them to the hospital. So that's the area that these kids were trick-or-treating, the one that died. Yes. And so then you have a rash of headlines accompanying AP Wire story, like the press release, I guess. And they include, Trick-or-treater dies of cyanide poisoning. Halloween poison killer is sought. Cyanide fatal to Pasadena boy. Cyanide candy killer is sought. Police search Pasadena as boy dies of cyanide. Police probe death candy. Police continue cyanide search. Police attempt to locate source of deadly candy. So you can see how this might make people a little paranoid. So of course the police were going around. They were looking for someone that was handing out cyanide-laced pixie sticks. I mean, did they find any other pixie sticks with cyanide in them? Yes, and I have a quote. Detective David Mulligan says, Up to this point, we have uncovered five straws that definitely contain potassium cyanide. They were given to the little boy's sister, two other boys that were with them, and one other boy. The other children did not eat the candy. They got the sticks on the last block before they completed their route in Bowling Green section of Pasadena. Mr. O'Brien just can't fix in his mind which house it was. So O'Brien was trying to help them at this point, the dad of the kid that had passed away, which, as you can imagine, would be very emotionally trying. And they said that they had narrowed their search area to just 10 houses. So you can imagine if you're one of the people in those 10 houses, you are sweating bullets. Police are breathing down your neck. They're closing in on you. And the medical examiner said that the cyanide was a deadly drug. That would have killed in an hour. That's why they use it in the gas chamber, he says. Right, cyanide is extremely, extremely deadly. It's why you always see it used in like old movies and stuff as, as the poison to kill somebody quickly. All I can think about is Nazis. I think like spies. Like biting down on the cyanide capsule. Or, or like poison rings. Oh, yeah. Poison cigars. Exploding cigars. Spies are fun. This is not fun. Goad called on parents to get rid of any Halloween candy that had been collected by children. He says, it's just not worth the risk. If parents want their children to eat candy, let them go to the store and buy candy. Which, if I read all these headlines and heard about a kid that actually died, I would toss all the candy. I would buy you some candy. I can hear us saying that. Like, very, very realistically, like, honey, we'll get you some more. It's half off right now anyway. Yeah, we'll get you bags. What do you want? No, not the wax lips. Those are stupid. (laughs) You gotta love the way old newspapers wrote. Rhodes said the dead youth's father, which I just like, really? The dead youth's father? Ronald O'Brien was helping officers trying to pinpoint the exact house they visited. He's still in a state of shock. We hope that today or tomorrow things will start coming back to him. 
Right, which at one point they were driving around with him in this neighborhood just trying to get him to identify somebody. Mm-hmm. And there was one guy out like mowing his lawn, like working in his yard. And he kind of just goes, uh, maybe it was that guy. Okay. That guy had an airtight alibi. So not that guy. Not random guy he pointed to. Which really, like, I think about it. And I think about, like, okay, we're going to take the kids trick-or-treating. We did it last year. Can you imagine we get home and someone's like, where did you get those Snickers? No way in hell, dude. I would not be able to answer that question. I really wouldn't. Like, I mean, just... Just to say. No, no, no way. Maybe if it were like in one of those cute bags, you know how some people do like goodie bag handouts, like if it were remarkable and didn't just look like every other piece of candy in the bag, maybe. Yeah, but then like we let even let our five-year-old just walk up to the road by himself while we stand a few feet back and we don't really see even what's handed to them. Maybe we don't need to do that this year. <laughs> Police said that there are 48 homes in the subdivision and they're still questioning homeowners in each one. We've still got to get some things cleared up before something can happen to somebody else. Most of the residents in the area were incredulous about the incident. Linda Smedley, who was 23 at the time, said that the, again, you've got to love the way they write this stuff, dead child called at her house for treats. That sounds like a horror story. So sensitive. Sounds like a ghost, is all I can think. My kids are never going trick-or-treating again, she said. I can't believe it would happen in a nice neighborhood like this one. You can never believe it's going to happen in your nice neighborhood. Of course not. Phone calls to the police have been pouring in, but by day four, they're beginning to slow down a little bit. And one night dispatcher who was interviewed said, they're not angry. They're just intently interested. They want to know if an arrest has been made yet. I've only gotten one irate phone call tonight. Most of the others just want to know if we've got anybody yet and if his name will be published when we get him. But most people, well, I mean, I don't think they want a lynching or anything. So people are being very rational and calm, you see. I see that. If they're, if they're not asking you to publicly hang someone, we're, we're, we're doing well, especially in Texas. Everyone is putting everything they have into this case, said Detective Larry Turnipseed, who has the greatest name in the history of the force. You included that quote just to say... I did, <laughs> and I will argue with anyone who says it wasn't worth it. And then we have another article from the Brownsville Herald. Timothy died Thursday night after his father agreed to let him eat one piece of candy before going to sleep. They collected candy for only half an hour. Ronald says, 30 seconds after I left Tim's room, I heard him cry to me. Daddy, daddy, my stomach hurts, said Ronald O'Brien. He was in the bathroom, convulsing, vomiting, and gasping, and then suddenly went limp. The father, fighting back tears, told a reporter how his son began vomiting immediately after eating the candy. I never even really thought it might have been poison candy until the police told me about the cyanide. He later said, It's so disheartening to think there wasn't more we could do. We thought we were being so careful. We even wondered if we should go out this year. Recalling his son, he said, He was all boy. He loved football and basketball, anything. He never met a stranger. I have my peace knowing that Tim is in heaven now. Right, you have to feel for this guy. You know, also, during his funeral, he sang a hymn. They were a very religious family. I mean, his son just died suddenly without any warning. Or reason. It would just be devastating for that to happen to a father. Cut to November the 5th. Ronald Clark O'Brien indicted for capital murder in the case of the Halloween candy poisoning. Damn it. (laughs) So just when we were starting to have a little faith in humanity. I don't know about that. A little faith in the power of P. 
parenthood, whatever, I don't know, something, human feeling for this individual, this comes out. Police made a stunning announcement at a hastily called news conference today. They said the father was in custody. We in the district attorney's office felt that there was a sufficient evidence at this time to, for the charge to be filed. There is no further comment at this time, as we are still rounding up loose ends, said E.L. Rhodes. An anonymous source, however, a leaky drip faucet, reported that the father had taken out $38,000 worth of life insurance on both of his children five days before Halloween. And this was actually what broke the case. Yeah, it is. The insurance adjuster called the police saying, hmm. Hmm. Insurance adjuster solves the I come to save the day. So charges were filed on the 5th at midnight. Then we move to another headline. Father held in Halloween death. Father charged in trick-or-treat poisoning. His actions resulted in calls to the mayor's office in the area asking to end the practice of giving treats to children at Halloween. Residents in the area had started a reward fund and raised over $1,800 for the arrest of the perpetrator when it was announced that the father had been taken into custody. Neighbors said that the O'Brien family was active in their church and that O'Brien was always closely supervised his son's activities. So glad he was. And then C.E. Melvin, a resident of the street where the candy was supposedly given out, said, We knew our neighbors, and we knew that there was no way one of our neighbors had poisoned that boy. Other residents in the area said they were relieved that the hint of suspicion which had shrouded the area since the death had been lifted. Now, that same day, Deer Park, not knowing that this bomb was going to drop, ran an op-ed that I find very interesting in light of all of our discussions about fear, trick-or-treating, Halloween, and Boogeyman. It says, The Deer Park Civic Center sponsored a Halloween carnival for all residents. This organized activity, with municipal sanction, was safe and enjoyable outlet for costumed youngsters. Would it not be better for more activities of this nature to be held in the future in order that a young child's life might be saved? When a child knocks on a strange door asking for treats, he does not know what he may be getting. But if he is at school or church playing Halloween games, he'll be having just as much fun safely and be able to enjoy his holiday with his schoolmates. The death of Timothy O'Brien will be a faint memory for many children, but the possibility of their death or injury will be just as great as his and the children who received the tampered candy. For their sake, we urge their parents to take them to well-sponsored, organized activities. Right, and this was published before they knew. It actually ran the same day. Oh, but it was written before. Yeah. Yeah, before they knew that maybe their parents supervision was going to fix it. Yeah. It's so ironic. And like, I feel bad for like even appreciating the irony because it's also so tragic. Like, this is one of the the hardest cases I've ever researched. And it's because I really don't ever look into cases where parents kill their kids. I know I did on the La Arena episode, but it just, it was so much more brief. Like, I don't feel like I wallowed in it like i have with this one right you can't help but think of just how how scary it is that a parent would do that to a kid you know it's not it's not the stranger i think it's because suspicion was cast on a stranger and then it was so much worse it was even worse it was worse than some halloween sadist yeah so what happened to our true halloween sadist he was indicted for capital murder as well as one count of attempted capital murder for his daughter Elizabeth O'Brien, who was five at the time, and three counts of attempted murder for Kimberly Bates, aged 11, Mark Bates, aged 8, 
and Whitney Parker, aged 10. Yeah, I guess that's something we've not really hit on hard, is that he gave the other kids in the party pixie sticks as well, also laced with cyanide. Yeah, so that makes the legend truer? Right, because we do have a stranger, in a way, giving away, but he was just doing it to cover for him killing his own children. Yeah, he was planning on killing both his kids. I absolutely believe that. Double the money. Right. So during his indictment hearing, a man called Bob Terry, who is an acquaintance of O'Brien's, testified that during the day, one day when he was working for the Acro Chemical Company, he received a phone call from O'Brien, Ronald, the dad, asking if anybody could buy cyanide and what the fatal dosage was. And that was in September. I mean, it's like, I'm not going to kill anybody with it. I'm just curious. Oh, he had a good excuse. Oh, really? He said he was uh, taking a course at the junior college and he just wanted to make sure his professor knew what he was talking about uh, of course of course there was no wikipedia then no so you gotta call bob terry god damn it this guy had, a, <laughs> had access to wikipedia we'd all be dead so jean bates the mother of the other two children that were in the party the little group that had gone trick-or-treating also testified that her daughter kimberly told her that o'brien had given the fifth pixie sticks to the Parker child when the boy came to the Bates store. Also said that Mrs. O'Brien had told her that the family was having financial difficulties. So in this case, we do have him giving a pixie stick to a random child. Hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Which is horrifying. Then we get into some really interesting trial testimony. Jimmy Bates, a close family friend, the father of the children that were with the O'Brien children, told of the rainy night and how he and O'Brien had escorted the children to dozens of homes on a soggy trick-or-treat outing. He also told of the horror and shock he felt a few hours later when Timothy was dead. I came within a whisker of losing both my children, he said. There had been a horrendous crime committed against me, against society, against every kid at Halloween. I was angry, and I wanted the individual who tried to kill my children caught and punished. As he should be. But I think that line, like, against me, against society, against every kid at Halloween. It really is. Later he was called the man who killed Halloween. They called him the candy man as well. Bates testified that O'Brien suggested the trick-or-treat outing. He said that O'Brien asked if he could bring his son and daughter to Bates' house to tour Bowling Green area where Bates' family lived. Sounds like they lived in a nicer area. Yeah, I got a good candy. Yeah. Full candy bars. Yep, yep, yep. Knowing that Tootsie Rolls, I actually love Tootsie Rolls. I do too. (laughs) And Smarties. I really do like Smarties. (laughs) It was a happy occasion. The two families were good friends and the wives planned a meal at the Bates' home. Afterward, Bates got a flashlight and an umbrella and loaned O'Brien a raincoat. Is that a raincoat, Ronald? (laughs) It is, Mr. Bates. Together with the children, Timothy, Elizabeth, Mark Bates, and Kimberly Bates, they set out. The rain increased and Kimberly, who had already been out earlier, returned home. The rest of the group continued. The children were excited, said Bates. They were running from door to door. They would shout, trick or treat. There wasn't really any tricking. They were enjoying it so much, said Bates. Not even bursting of the rain-soaked candy bags slowed them down. The men put the candy in their pockets and the neighbors gave them some extra sacks. He said there was one house along the route where no one came to the door. O'Brien stepped away from the group and went to the door out of sight. Then he came back from the door with some pixie sticks. He claimed that the residents of the home had given him the candy to give the children. He was teasing. He said, you've got some rich neighbors. Look what they're giving. I see the full candy bars. Mm-hmm. And then he swished them like riding crops. I've got him who wants him, he said, and handed him out to the youngsters. 
But then he took them back from the children, and they raced on. Bates said it was the first time he'd seen the 10-cent candy. When they got back to the Bates house, O'Brien excused himself to get some suckers out of his car, and Bates went into the house, followed by the children, and a few minutes later by O'Brien. The pixie sticks were out on the coffee table, and O'Brien handed them out along with large lollipops, one to each child. Then the doorbell rang. A group of trick-or-treaters were at the door, and then the last pixie stick was gone. Then the O'Briens left. Bates went to the night shift at the power company, and Mrs. Bates started to clean up because everyone had tracked mud in her house. And then Mark went to take a bath. That's one of the kids. Yeah, the eight-year-old. And then he came back to the living room and grabbed the giant pixie stick and announced he was going to eat it. And she took it from him and said, No, you're not. I don't want this all over the house. That is an outside candy. Mom saves the day. Oh, my God. I would be so glad that my mom would let me have candy. Like, I would have gone to bed so mad. And then I would have been so grateful later when I thought about it. Bates also said that O'Brien twice talked before Halloween of his plans to buy a home in the comfortable Bowling Green subdivision. So Bates warned him that a home in the area could run as much as $6,500. And he says, that's all right, because I've got some money, and I'll have more by the end of the year. Wonder where the money's coming from. I don't know. He also asked Bates not to tell either of their wives because he wanted it to be a surprise. And then Kimberly Bates, the 11-year-old daughter who was given a pixie stick by the man who killed Halloween, testified in court. And in truly creepy form, we have this little descriptor. Kimberly Bates, an 11-year-old with pretty brown eyes and the promise of great beauty, was the second witness for the prosecution. Dude, they didn't investigate this report. I know, it's awful. But anyway, Kimberly Bates testified, and they said, can you identify the man that gave you a pixie stick? And she pointed to O'Brien without a word. He handed me one and one to my brother, and one to each of his children, and there was one left, she said. The doorbell rang, and there were some trick-or-treaters. She knew one of them, a boy named Mickey Parker, but she walked from the door before O'Brien handed out the pixie stick. As with her brother, Kim never ate the candy. The day after Halloween, she testified, the police got my pixie stick, which may be the most haunting and the most absurd thing ever said in a court of law. And you have to imagine they weren't looking for razor blades and the pixie sticks. And as the court recessed that day, O'Brien told the bailiff that the Bates children had always been just like two of his own. Apparently, because he tried to poison all of them. Other boy, Whitney Parker, was sort of a random chance thing, which is the thing everyone's scared of in the first place. He testified in court that he rang the doorbell and went up with some friends to the door and O'Brien came out holding this giant pixie stick, which was the 10 cent candy, the whole snicker bar, you know, and he's holding it above his head. He says, I've got it. Who wants it? Which apparently was the thing that he was saying that night. Who wants cyanide? Me, me, me. Like, seriously, Whitney Parker says that he's like, me, me. I go to your church. Pick me. And so he gives it to the one that goes to his church because he says, pick me. And interestingly, the parents said in a later interview that they'd heard all the stories about tampered candy. And so they did pour out all of Whitney's candy when he got home and look through it. And they did not notice the pixie stick had been tampered with because it was sealed. Even if it was sealed with a staple, they don't know what how a giant pixie stick is supposed to be sealed. So he had taken out life insurance policies on his kids. He was planning on killing his kids, killing a few other kids to make it look like it was some random stranger, and collecting all this sweet, sweet cash 
So he can buy a nice house in Deer Park. Right. And the figures on the amount of life insurance that he had taken out on Timothy escalated over the course of the trial as more and more was found. And eventually the figure was estimated at $63,000 worth of life insurance, which in 1974, when these policies were taken out, would have been equivalent to almost $300,000 today. So on Tuesday, June the 3rd of 1975, O'Brien was found guilty of capital murder. State asked for the death penalty. The prosecutor, named Hinton, said he ought to be damned for what he did. I'm not going to argue with Hinton. Usually an overzealous Texas prosecutor kind of gets my goat, but... Go for it. Yeah, Yeah. pretty accurate. And he went on to say, nobody has anything to gain but this defendant. I don't want you to forget for one minute that he wanted to take those other kids with him. I've never seen a man with more guts. And it took them 46 minutes to come to a guilty verdict. And then after that, they quickly sentenced him to death. And there were other things that came out in the trial that were just horrifying. Like one officer, Sergeant Best, testified that O'Brien had told him that he'd opened the stick for his son and the boy had eaten part of it. But then Tim complained that no more would come out. So the father rolled it between his hands and, in quotes, poured it down the child. Yeah, so imagine the scene. You have a kid and he was in a Planet of the Apes costume. His father takes this pixie stick that he has put cyanide in and literally pours it in the kid's mouth. Culpable. A little bit. Wait, then Bess was told that the child complained of a bad taste, said it didn't taste right, and he was given Kool-Aid. And he testified that he seemed, the father seemed less upset than he would have expected. And he based that on his assessment because they'd been in a college class together over the last year. So this is a small community. Everybody knows everybody. And he thinks he can get away with murder, which is so interesting. And he's using this urban legend as a shield. A hundred percent. Right. This is a classic example of an urban legend coming to life. This is, without a doubt, not the inspiration for the urban legend. No, it's a product of it. Exactly. You know, we see that there was a bunch of news reports right before this came out. And it was in the paper. It was something everybody knew about. Everybody was warning. Oh, don't let your kids eat the candy. It's poison. There are razor blades in it. Some random stranger is going to try to kill your kids. He knew about this legend. And he knew that if he made it real, he had an out. He could blame that societal boogeyman. Well, he was more terrible. Like, everything I read about him, he just kept getting more and more terrible in my mind. Like, for... One thing, another officer, a patrolman named Jesse Zeisiger, who lived a minute away from the house, got the 911 call and, like, literally got out and ran over there and was the first person to get to the scene. You know, he was worried about the kid. And he goes in, he gets to the home, and the boy's, like, laying on the bathroom floor. And he says, he looked dead to me. And then O'Brien had told Bates that he was pretty sure that a bald man with really hairy arms had given his kids the candy. Oh, not that hairy-armed, balding guy. I think he looks like the guy on Aqua Teen Hunger Force, because that's all I can picture. And so, you know, he was sentenced to death. Yes, because, again, Hinton, my favorite prosecutor, said he had sacrificed his son on the altar of greed. Pretty accurate. Yeah. I think that's so interesting when you think about the satanic panic lore that comes out later. Like, that boogeyman that sacrificed his son, like that. I would read a horror novel by that prosecutor, by the way. So at that time was when the death penalty was temporarily outlawed. 
Right. So he got a few extra years out of that. He was actually originally sentenced to death a few years later on Halloween. It got stayed. He had many appeals, all denied. But he maintained his innocence until the day he died. It's because he's a true sociopath, narcissistic motherfucker piece of shit. I hate this guy. Like, I hate him. I would beat him to death with my shoe if I could reach him. Here, I'm going to make it even better. Okay. In an interview, he said, the victim of the crime is me. <laughs> Seething rage. Like, <laughs> just... And there's an interview with Donahue, which if you want to watch that and want to watch some more clips of this, there's a great documentary out called Killer Legends by Joshua Zeman who we'll actually be talking to in a few weeks about Urban Legends and his other documentary, Cropsy. Look out for that in your podcast feeds in the next few weeks. You can watch some of the interviews with him, some of the interviews with the detectives that we've been talking about and the prosecutors. And it's just, it's fascinating. It's extremely well done, highly recommended. But there's an interview clip he has in there of Donahue interviewing him on death row. And he says, you know, you're accused of ruining Halloween for everybody. And Brian replies, that's a matter of opinion. No. And then he says, you know, it's said that the other people in the prison are calling you the candy man. And then he just smiles. Smirks. <sighs> so he was executed on March 31st of 1984. So on the date of his execution, there was actually a really big demonstration outside the prison. And of course, there are the people there to protest the death penalty, as per usual. But there are also people there who are just really stoked that the man who killed Halloween was going to be executed. Right. In March, places were having Halloween parties to celebrate this. They were chanting trick-or-treat and throwing candy to the people there to protest the death penalty. You know they ate it. <laughs> you know they ate it. So did he kill Halloween? I don't know. Obviously not. No, but there was definitely a serious, very real aftermath. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Bill Ellis, he's a great folklorist and killer legends he's interviewed and he says that he desecrated the idea of halloween you know by taking that scary story and literally making it true and so someone very close to the case jimmy bates again was interviewed after the sentence came out about his experience and what this has been like for his family when they asked how he explained the event to his children he said we just told the children that tim had died and that Mr. O'Brien had been accused of doing it for money. They don't express themselves. It affected them more than they will show. And then he was asked if they would be participating in any Halloween festivities the next year. He says, A year in the life of a child is a lot. I don't think it will dampen their spirits that much. It will probably bother me more than them. I don't really know what we'll do. We could go a hundred years and not have anything bad. We have good neighbors. He did report that many friends and neighbors had told them that they would not allow their children to trick-or-treat in the future. I think people will be a little bit more careful about what houses they go to, and the parents will go along. It'll probably work the other way, too. Some people who would probably normally give out candy may not. And then about O'Brien, he said, I knew him and I liked him. I've known a lot of people who tell lies, but I don't think those people could be capable of committing a crime of this magnitude. I thought the jury did a good job. The verdict was just and warranted. They couldn't have done anything else. Everyone in the neighborhood realizes that it's over now. It was a nightmare that has ended. And in that same paper, a woman named Penny Jester 
was interviewed, and her son had been a friend of Timothy's, and he said to her, Mama, do you mean to tell me that his daddy didn't like him? And then the child asked if they had an insurance policy on him. Oh, my God. And she went on to say of O'Brien, he just didn't seem like the type, you know. I guess it just goes to show you, you never really know a person. And they ask her about her Halloween plans, and she says, it's still too vivid for mine, her children. There will be nothing. It would be like reliving the whole thing. They don't even mention it. As far as I'm concerned, Halloween is over for us. I don't care if I have to put a sign in in my window. No Halloween here. A fun thing has been destroyed. Bill Ellis continues uh, talking about how the story, this man, has desecrated Halloween. But then he also states, but we know that only an anonymous creepy killer could do this. And we know this due to urban legends. The Halloween sadist, this idea that this stranger could come out from nowhere and give your child poisoned candy, that idea is a myth. That idea is an urban legend. But it stays there as that reminder of the fragility of society, that we continue to have these growing doubts about the safety of our children. But this also shows the strength of those urban legends. And it makes you wonder, is it that stranger giving out Halloween candy who you should be worried about? Yeah, you're safe as long as you're with your parents. Or maybe that's just a story. Yeah, maybe that's the part that's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.